In a Manner of Speaking, a monthly podcast on the spoken word. Episode number 69, October 2023. Orality and Literacy. A conversation with Brian Art. Hello, Paul Meyer here. First up, guess that accent. Last time I played this clip from the Idea Archive and challenged you to say where on the planet the speaker grew up. You milked the cows. You fed the chickens. You slopped the pigs. <laughs> and then you went off to work. We raised tobacco. That was the main crop. And we also, of course, raised garden. We raised our food. I'm sure you decided on the United States, but if you narrowed it down to Kentucky, extra points for you. It was Ideas Kentucky 3, contributed by Rinda Fry. Thanks again, Rinda. The subject was born over 100 years ago, in 1918, in Carroll County, 45 miles east of Louisville, pronounced Louisville by the locals. She spent her whole life in Carroll County. That makes her about as pure a dialect sample as you could ask for. She described her occupation as, quote, housewife to the county judge, end quote. To hear the whole recording, read the transcription, and access more details about the subject, go to the Dialects and Accents tab on the menu bar of dialectsarchive.com, then North America, United States, Kentucky. Now this month's challenge. Where did this speaker spend her formative years? I dreamt once that a distant relative of mine, who was already dead, I dreamt of him, and in my dream, he is getting married, and um, his bride was a dark, uh, dark-skinned, uh, very good-looking woman. Get the answer next time. Just a reminder, we welcome self-submissions to IDEA. In other words, you don't have to be an official editor to submit to the archive. If you have an interesting dialect of English or speak English, in the accent of your first language, your voice will be of great interest to the millions who use the archive. Go to the Submissions tab of dialectsarchive.com for all the details. Before we get to the main attraction today, if you aren't listening to me on paulmeyer.com, switch over now. And from the Other Services menu tab, select In a Manner of Speaking, then click Episode number 69. You'll find lots of information and extra material there not available on any other podcast channel. My distinguished guest this month is Professor Brian L. Ott. He's the author of seven books and more than 100 scholarly articles. His field is rhetoric and media. He's in huge demand as a podcast guest. His list of media interviews runs to 10 pages, so I'm very grateful that he accepted my invitation. So hello, Brian. Welcome to In a Manner of Speaking. Hi, Paul. Thanks for having me. So let's start here. I was putting together an episode, as you know, comparing written communication versus spoken communication, and came across your great article, Redefining Rhetoric. One of the things that really caught my eye was your discussion of what you call the materiality of speech. Most people might think of speech as non-material. There's no pen, no paper, no printing press, sound waves, nothing solid. So what exactly do you mean by the materiality of speech? Let me first say that 
rhetoric for most of its 2000 plus year old history has been treated predominantly as a symbolic activity. But rhetoric in all of its forms, whether we're talking about speech or whether we're talking about the written word or whether we're talking about digital media in our contemporary moment, rhetoric in all of its forms always has some kind of material component. You're quite right to acknowledge that speech is the one that we treat as being the least material of all of those. Yeah, yeah. But speech, before it is anything else, is sound. Right. And sound is uh, percussive and it has an impact on human bodies. Speech originates inside of a human vessel before exiting the mouth. So sound has an effect on us and, and sound has identifiable properties, particularly when we're talking about speech sounds. You know, one of the interesting things about speech is that it's evanescent always going out of existence mm-hmm. so as someone is talking the words are disappearing into the yes, air yes yes it's um, impermanent evanescent as you say yeah yeah it, it's entirely impermanent one of the reasons why in the discipline that i study in communication we're very very interested in speech as a mode of interaction or transaction it's something that parties have to be present for A lot of individuals treat speech sound in particular as an event, as opposed to the way we think about writing. Writing transforms language into an object, something that principally engages the sense of sight that can literally be carried around with you. Mm -hmm. But sound just isn't like that. And that particularly is true the further back in history we go, when we didn't have the fine sound recording technologies you're using today. Yes, yes. And of course, writing is the very opposite of evanescent. It's pretty darn permanent. So you better be careful what you write down, right? This was Plato's concern about the invention of writing. He was quite concerned that it would destroy memory. And it turns out it probably has had uh, negative consequences. Yes. So it's material, even though it's evanescent uh, and constantly disappearing over the horizon. Okay, great. So you regularly teach, you tell me, uh, Walter Ong's classic orality and literacy. So... I know this isn't your main interest as a researcher and scholar, but let's talk a little bit about some more of the differences that we haven't hit on already, and particularly the habits of mind. You write about the habits of mind that the two modes invite. So let me get you started down that road. I'm a big fan of Walter Ong's orality and literacy. Walter Ong is often regarded as one of the first generation uh, medium theorists. He was very interested in how every medium of communication, every communication technology has its own distinctive structural features and how those structural features in turn shape our communication, they shape our culture, and they shape human consciousness. And I often refer to that third category as habits of mind. They shape the way we process information, the way we think. So Ong was famous for identifying the psychodynamics of orality. And his work is concerned principally with what he calls primary orality. And this is oral culture that has no knowledge whatsoever of the technologies of writing and printing. Mm. 
And so a primary orality, for the most part, doesn't exist anywhere in the world anymore, but it is the largest or longest part of human history. We know that human speech evolved roughly 150,000 to 50,000 years ago, and it was the only uh, or was the primary mode of uh, communication, the primary technology of communication up until the invention of writing, which occurred sometime around 3200 BCE. So for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, and this is what I try to get my my students to understand, for, for thousands and thousands of years, almost our exclusive mode of communication was orality. Yeah. The people who lived during that period, they were not encumbered by all of the technologies that we have today and the ways that those technologies alter how we think. There's some defining characteristics of orality that make it unique. Orality creates a spherical experience of space. The human body can detect sound from any direction. And so sound is more like a bubble than printing is. So printing, you have to be looking at the page you're reading to be able to see it. And if a book is behind you and out of your field of vision, then there's no chance of you reading that book. But someone else could read that book to you and they could be standing behind you and you don't have to turn around Mm. and you could still have the sonorous experience of speech. So they create different experiences of space. And those different experiences of space, in turn, contribute to different ways of making sense of the world and ourselves in the world. So because writing confines the word to a very fixed space that involves directional looking, it is exceedingly sequential. And so the whole idea of subordinative reasoning The whole idea of indexing that is so reflective of book culture and print culture, that didn't exist at all in primary orality. They didn't think like that. Yes, yes. You know, what I started flashing on as you were speaking there, Brian, was I I do a lot of, uh, I used to do much more than I do now, audiobooks. Mm. And I, I continue to train audiobook narrators. And of course, audiobooks, People predicted their death, uh, you know, radio drama, you know, that's going to be dead soon, but it's more popular than ever, more lucrative than ever in the industry. And part of what I do as a as trainer of audiobook narrators is to invite them to uh, create a soundscape. I'm slightly moving towards the microphone now as I speak. And, um, you know, I, I might pitch one character back here. He's a little bit louder, but then, then this character is more intimate. And I know you can tell the difference between those two characters when they're speaking by by their distance from the microphone. It's always struck me as remarkable how dynamic the human voice is. It sure is. I, I don't think there's a, a more subtle, varied instrument that we've invented. I, I cannot think of a, a musical instrument that can even begin to rival the human voice. Right. Powerful, powerful. You refer to yourself as a a media ecologist. I was fascinated by that term. What do you mean by it? Media ecology is an interdisciplinary field that studies media as environments. And so media ecologists generally believe that when you change the media 
that uh, dominate a particular social milieu, that you are in fact changing the nature of the environment itself. Here's the point that I would make and other media ecologists I think would agree with, is that when you introduce a new communication technology, the new communication technology always fundamentally alters the environment that you introduce it into. It's not the old environment plus the new technology. The introduction of the new technology actually changes the environment. You, you can think of dissolving sugar in water, right? So it's, it's not just um, water that has sugar in it now. It's a new solution. And that's what happens when we change prevailing communication technologies. We fundamentally alter our social environment. Mm. And further, media ecologists believe that every communication technology has relatively distinctive structural features. Those features are relatively fixed, meaning that they're, they're mostly unchanging for that particular technology. And those structural features are biased. Bias just means that every communication technology is predisposed to be good at doing some things Yes. And not so good at doing other things. Yeah. How would that relate to the medium that we're using right now, Zoom? It's hard to think that there was a time when we didn't have Skype and Zoom. And and here we are talking and obeying the rules of Zoom interaction without our cameras on, by the way. Is this a good example of something that a media ecologist would study? It absolutely is. So most media ecologists would classify the platform of Zoom technology that we're using right now. They would classify it in, in the third major development of human technologies related to civilization. The first would be primary orality. The second would be the invention of writing and ultimately mm -hmm. printing. So both uh, chirographic culture writing and typographic culture printing. And then moving into the electronic era. And, and in fact, we, we've already chatted a bit about Walter Ong. Walter Ong describes the electronic era as an era of secondary orality. Now, he's quite clear, and, and I think he's right about this. It's not orality in the primary orality sense. Orality has been transformed by uh, first the analog electronic technologies we use, and more recently by the digital so there's no way for us, for instance, Paul, to just shed our knowledge of writing and printing, even though we're interacting orally now. So yes. I've spent the better part of my career working in communication departments that teach public speaking. And if you look at the way we teach public speaking, it's heavily influenced by writing. And so we teach students essentially to carefully outline their speech where some ideas are subordinated to other ideas, and we teach them to make rational arguments. And for the most part, we don't teach them the techniques, tools, and devices of primary orality. And so there's not much attention paid, for instance, to the materiality of sound. And there's more attention paid to the content of what they're saying. And that's one of the ways that orality has been transformed as it has been brought into the 21st century. Sounds like you're leveling a criticism at public speaking teaching as making it a writing event that's simply made audible. That's very astute of you uh, to pick up on the fact that there's an implicit critique in what I'm saying there because you're quite right. One of the reasons why I developed an interest in the materiality of speech and rhetoric generally is because I think we need to attend more carefully 
to the material dimension of speech today. One of the other changes or shifts that's occurred as a consequence of our digital environment is affect is far more important than it used to be, particularly in terms of writing. Let me take a moment and explain um, how I'm using the term affect because I'm, I'm using it in a in a somewhat uh, specific sense. Okay, I'm one of a number of scholars who would distinguish pretty strongly between the concept of emotion and the concept of affect. Emotion is always individual. If I'm experiencing an emotion, Paul, um, that emotion is my own and you're not experiencing it. You might empathize with the emotion I've been experiencing. You might sympathize with it, but, but you don't actually feel my emotion. Affect is public. Affect is sort of an emotional charge that is very easily transmitted among and between bodies because of our digital environment. And so if I were to to simplify the uh, concept of affect as much as I possibly could, it's something on the order of public emotion, emotion that is shared by a group of individuals. Public affect or public emotion is a really powerful mode of rhetoric in the 21st century and as a consequence of our digital technologies. And I think we need to, as scholars and also teachers and practitioners of speech, attend more carefully to the ways that the materiality of our voices, the physical material sound of the human voice, is central to the generation of affect. Yes. I tell you what you're making me think of now, Brian. I spent my life pretty much as a a trainer of actors, an actor-trainer. And in the field of voice and speech, that particular part of theatre that is concerned with with voice and speech. When I entered the field, it was presumed to be a field unmediated by microphones. So Mm -hmm. when an actor's on a stage, on a platform, speaking to an audience, we've got that pure, maybe primary orality of which you spoke. But more and more, the microphone started to invade our world and... The actor's primary orality was mediated by electronic devices and inevitably changed and sullied that primary communication tool. You're absolutely pointing to some of the issues that would concern uh, media ecologists. My suspicion, and I, I don't want to speak for you, but my suspicion is you probably have a preference for certain types of microphones, don't you? My preference in a very general way is no microphones at all. Oh, right. right. The natural condition is one of primary orality. And then we keep putting technologies between ourselves and other people. Now, I'm not the type of individual who sees that entirely in positive or negative terms. Obviously, you and I would not be able to have the conversation we're having today without the aid of digital technologies. Right. We're in separate cities Precisely. We'd have to speak rather loudly to reach each other. (laughs) We're benefiting greatly from the technology that is between us. At the same time, as you noted earlier, we have our cameras turned off. And that's a huge volume of information that we've chosen not to respond to. So we've cut out the nonverbal component that is always accompanying, um, or usually is accompanying orality if it's face-to-face. Yes. 
And so, you know, we have lots of digital technologies today that cut out that nonverbal component that often accompanies oral speech. Text messaging is a really good example. And in fact, people struggle with the lack of nonverbal so much that we've invented a whole new language of emoticons yes. um, to try to make up for the fact that in text messaging, the nonverbal message is basically yeah. uh, non-existent. Yeah. yeah. Another thing I flashed on as you were speaking, Brian, was I would attend, you know, as an academic myself, now retired, I would attend meetings, small meetings in small rooms with a maybe a panel of 10 speakers and a, and a 30 or 40 at most people in the audience. And the people on the panel who were not more than 15, 20 feet from any person in the audience would actually hand around a talking stick <laughs> in order to reach us. <laughs> it, it seemed bizarre and in, intrusive and um, just, just reduces the immediacy of the human contact. Not totally blissfully unaware that the people in the audience who were asking questions didn't have a talking stick, right? Didn't have a microphone. So, what is this love affair with the microphone that we we feel we've got to increasingly rely upon it? We just keep inventing new technologies that really come between ourselves and others. This would, in fact, be my fear in sort of the digital moment that we live, even though there are really exciting opportunities presented by the period of secondary orality, mm. where we're able to bridge vast geographic distances, for instance, mm -hmm. um, and still use uh, spoken sound as central to our communication. There are other ways that the technology often gets in the way of true interpersonal exchange. And I'll just give you one example. We know, for instance, that during the period of primary orality, again, this, this is that period that, that knows no sense whatsoever of even the technology of writing. It hasn't been invented, and no one has even conceived of it yet. People forget that before writing uh, could be invented, another invention had to come first, and that was the alphabet. Um, the, you know, the alphabet is an invention, and it was invented to allow us to take these speech sounds and make written marks or signs of the speech sounds that we had been making for thousands of years with no need for an alphabet at all. <laughs> it's remarkable. To, I'm, it's good that you remind your students of that. It, it's good that we are reminded of, of this fact, yes. There was a practice in Greek theater, in the Greek amphitheaters, somewhat in dispute, I believe. I've, I've got another podcast guest who spoke about this, but the idea is that the Greek theater used to have metal vessels of various sizes filled to various levels with liquid, creating a resounding chamber or an echo chamber so that the these vessels that were placed throughout the auditorium would resonate in slightly different ways and favor particular frequencies so as to amplify the actor's speech. Would this be a technology that you would point to if it indeed was in wide practice? Would would this be one of the technologies that you would you would look at? I'm going to acknowledge that I've not heard about this before, but I'm absolutely fascinated by it. Isn't it an it, amazing it, idea? 
It's it's an incredible idea, and um, I absolutely would regard it as a technology. I have a very broad understanding of what constitutes a technology. Marshall McLuhan was sort of famous for saying that technologies are any extension of the human sensorium. And I I quite like that construction uh, for understanding technology. Here you're talking about, you know, like the human body and the production of sound using the voice technology and the way that that reverberates um, and resonates in the human ear. That very much is about resonance. We feel sound. Here we're talking about a technology that it sounds like would have been used in in large uh, public spaces where they're trying to create the physical experience of sound. Um, for a broader audience, even though they're further away from the actors. Yes, yes. I think it's such an exciting idea. I hope it's. I hope it's true. <laughs> yes, yes. I certainly hope it's true. Slightly changing the topic to something that I know you've professed yourself to be not an expert in, but I wanted to engage you at least in a general way. So, as a theatre person, I deal with written dialogue. As mm. a theatre and film specialist, I'm. All, there's always a script. There's written dialogue that. Actors must deliver in a way that convinces the audience that their character is speaking unscriptedly. Mm. Impromptu. I don't know what the question is, but do you have insights that you can bring to bear on this aspect of of theatre and film? What what are the markers of scripted speech and unscripted speech? Does this play into your areas of interest at all? It does in sort of an indirect way, which is, I have interest in ancient oral epic poetry. Yes. I'm interested in it in part because it's one of the few sort of vestiges we have for understanding what primary orality may have been like. I think that the general consensus in the academic community today is that Epic oral poetry was, in fact, an entire, well, it had to have been an uh, an entirely oral activity because writing hadn't been invented yet. It valued and privileged things that today we would not want um, because of the culture of writing. So it valued the use of repetition. It valued the use of formula. It valued the use of rhythm and cliché, even. Yes. Um, and cliche phrases. Yes. And th- those things would not have um, had negative connotations at all in primary orality, but they would be markers today of mimicry. Um, they would be markers today of inauthenticity. Yes. Right. And those ideas were, in fact, transformed by the culture of writing. Uh, to me, scripts, the whole idea that actors would perform. Uh, something that's been written first suggests just how different oral performance today is from oral performance several thousand years ago. Yes, yes. And even though the the bards uh, of ancient times were delivering oral presentations, this is not to say that they didn't value exactitude in the repetition of the myth. It was their primary vehicle for communicating communal values. Yes. And so the insistence on very patterned language, the the use of of, of meter and of rhyme mm-hmm. and all of those other rhetorical 
features. They were the basis of their oral epics. They couldn't have existed without it. And so they had a different relationship with memory than we have today because, because writing really sort of prevented us from having to remember things. You know, in primary orality, if people forgot what they knew or they didn't share repetitively, um, orally what they knew, when they died, that information died with them. Yes, yes. What a strong catalyst for bonding in a community that the bard had to have an apprentice who would copy him word from word yeah. in, in order to preserve the transmission of the culture, the story in, in exactitude. Today, we don't have to bother. With, we've got the book. So we yes. go back to the book. You know, <laughs> there it is. There it is. Unchanging. It doesn't morph on the page. But oral culture can be distorted very quickly. So exact repetition of the, the order of the generations, for example, if that's what the bard is revealing. Slightly in the same mode, I want to mention this. When we published new accent and dialect samples on IDEA, I think perhaps you've clicked on my IDEA archive, our editors transcribed the unscripted portion of their interviews, and they mm -hmm. turned something that was primarily oral into something written. Now, the first time I ever had to transcribe an unscripted discourse, I was ast actually astounded at how little the unscripted speech resembled written discourse. I expected it to translate into written discourse quite easily, but there was no sentence structure or far weaker sentence structure. Uh, no obvious way to punctuate the transcription. It was actually very difficult to do. And I began to really appreciate court stenographers and their skill in transcribing unscripted speech. On the page, that transcription might be sometimes quite difficult to make sense of. But when you're listening to the recording it came from, it's you know obviously much easier to understand what the speaker's saying. Uh, how does this fit in with your theories as a scholar? One of the things that we know about how we uh, study our rhetoric today is that we have the, the metaphor of the text. The whole idea that you can textualize rhetoric is really, again, a modern product of writing. Even the people in my field who study predominantly public address, they study public speeches, the, the first thing they want to do is get their hands on a copy of the speech. <laughs> they, want, they, they, want to get, they, they want to look at the words on a page, um, yes, yes. which is an odd, odd impulse for something that was delivered orally. Yes. We've given writing such uh, such a privilege. It's it, it it dominates, doesn't it? We the written word. You know, we we sign our name. You know, we have to write it down before it right. becomes truth. It's weird. Even the most famous people in my discipline who study public address, they rarely write about the sound of the speaker's voice. And we all know from just our own human experience in the world that some voices are more pleasing to us. And clearly part of the, the suasory effect of rhetoric, part of the way that it moves us and it, and it stirs the soul is its material component as sound. And so not, not all voices are equal. And, and, you know, you could have two individuals deliver the same speech and it would be a fundamentally different experience because the content is probably the least important component. Yes. Not what you say is how you say it, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm not saying it's unimportant, but no. it, it, it probably is the least important component. 
So doesn't that beg the question of whether we're able to resist the persuasiveness of a clever speaker at all? Does it, does this mean that we're safer when we rely on writing to make up our minds about the truth of something? Writing privileges a particular kind of knowledge, and that's a kind of knowledge that's highly valued in society today, or or at least was before the emergence of our digital era. So writing occupies a privileged position over morality in that sense. But the power of speech is so deep and so historically rooted that even in our courts of law today, there is nothing we value more than oral testimony. Yes. Sobering, isn't it? Yeah. Where where the written word is king, we still have this ancient, ancient affinity. Yes. For the spoken. Yeah. A lot of food for thought here. Slightly different topic. I don't know if it bears upon what we've been speaking, but I've always thought that there's a huge difference between knowing and believing. We we mm-hmm. tend to go to war to defend beliefs, but we're a little bit more relaxed over what we know or think we know, perhaps. Does this get into uh, how do we know what we know and, and how does that intersect with, with your study? That's a great question, Paul. When we're talking about knowing, for me, there's a distinction that I think is important to media ecologists. Most people who study media, but are not strictly speaking media ecologists, in other words, they're not interested in the structural differences between different communication technologies. A lot of times, um, people who study media purely study the content. That's what we've kind of been talking about with the idea that we try to textualize things and we erase their materiality. We erase the materiality of the human voice when we textualize a speech that was originally delivered orally. Yes. When you study content, content plays a significant role in shaping attitudes, values, and beliefs. Basically, the content of a message powerfully influences people's ideologies, their beliefs. One of the reasons why I'm interested in communication technologies and the structural biases of different communication technologies is because something deeper and more fundamental is happening even than ideology. And that's the idea of epistemology. How is meaning created, right? Yes, literally, how does the mind work? Ideology is about what we know. Epistemology is about how we know, Mm. how we process information. And so, you know, because I study a lot of modern communication technologies as well, or or digital communication technologies, I know that, you know, the, the, the way we process words and the way we process images is not precisely the same. Words are only meaningful in sequence. That's why the written word privileges rational thinking and linearity. It's it's, yes. it's why the invention of writing and printing led to the scientific revolution. But images, we don't process that way. When you look at a photograph, when you look at a picture, you don't look at one part of it and then the next part of it and then a third part of it. Your brain actually sees all of it at once. Yes. Yeah. And so, you know, because we live in so much of an image-based culture today, we've become very, very sophisticated at processing images. But because so little, comparatively speaking, because so little of our communication is face-to-face today. So uh, again, we, we have secondary orality, but it but but it's not actually face-to-face. Right. 
because so little of our communication today is face-to-face, it turns out that our skills at interpreting nonverbals are actually devolving. Hmm. We're not as sophisticated at it as we used to be. Fascinating. And so that can cause serious problems when you do interact with people face-to-face. We're not as sensitive to what is revealed by the sound of a person's voice. Our ears are not as trained to make sense of that and their uh, and another person's emotions, for instance, yes. um, as we were in earlier periods. Hmm. Yes. If modern society collapsed today, how long before our species reverted to our ancestors' habits of mind, do you think? What kind of pain would there be if, <laughs> if writing disappeared and we became post-literate, I wonder, became an oral culture again? That's a fascinating idea. One of the things that I think about quite a bit is what length of time has to pass before the change is just a change in a habit of mind, so a practice or behavior in terms of how we process and think about something, and how much time has to pass before we think about it in terms of being an evolutionary change. As a media ecologist, I'm committed, Paul, to the idea that the human brain is not the same as it was several thousand years ago, that it, that it is in fact wired differently and that our brains have evolved in part with the technologies that we have invented at that time. And as I try to share with my students, I think this is an important point, I think. It's not a reasonable thing to simply say no to modern technologies. No. They've become so central to the fabric of our lives that you would be seriously handicapping someone if you told them, hey, you're, you're not allowed to use digital technologies anymore. It's it's hard to imagine how they would really make it through the day because our, our world is so dependent on their capacity to use um, digital technologies. My hope as an educator and, and as, a, as a scholar is not that we say a technology is good or a technology is bad or that we should say use this technology or don't use this technology, but that we recognize that all technologies, all communication technologies, including the human voice, have strengths and weaknesses. They have things that they're better at doing and things that they're not so good at doing, and that we should use our communication technologies in mindful ways to accomplish the purposes that we set out to accomplish in a particular moment in time. And so if you are trying to do relational maintenance, maybe text messaging isn't the best communication technology to do relational maintenance. Maybe orality and face-to-face communication is a far better mode of interaction for doing relational maintenance. There is a place in our world for, I guess it's called X now, what formerly was known as Twitter of being able to make a mass of people aware of something broadly and quickly. There's no technology that does that better than Twitter or X. Again, it's not about a technology being good or bad. If I have a fear or if I have, fear is maybe too strong a word. If I have an anxiety, Paul, my anxiety is that we often don't turn to orality and to oral communication in contexts that would be best suited for oral communication. Oh, I love that. That sounds like a fitting conclusion to our conversation. Brian, this has been fascinating. Thanks so very much for joining me today. It's been my pleasure, Paul. Thank you for having me. And thanks to you for joining me, Paul Meyer, and my guest, Brian Ott. 
To learn more about him and his work, go to paulmeyer.com, choose In a Manner of Speaking from the Other Services tab on the menu bar, and click episode number 69. Email me with your comments and questions, paul at paulmeyer.com. And don't forget to follow Paul Meyer Dialect Services on Facebook and me on Twitter, or X as it's now known, at Dialect Paul. Join me again next month. My guest will be Karen Burgos, creator of Ace Linguist, her very successful blog. We'll be talking about what we would hear in the speech of the European colonists before the American Revolution, if we could time travel back to the 1750s. Did the Rebs sound like the Redcoats, or did they all sound British? What would be the authentic dialects to use in a film or play set in that period? Find out next time on In a Manner of Speaking. 